Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15, Matthew chapter 15. Poet James Allen Francis wrote, 19 centuries have come and gone, and he is the central figure of the human race. And all the armies that have ever marched, and all the navies that have ever sailed, and all the parliaments that have ever sat, and all the kings that have ever reigned, and all the presidents that have ever been elected put together have not impacted the life on this planet as much as one man named Jesus. Amen? Have you ever thought about how crazy that is? Jesus was born in a small podunk town to a family that was far from rich. He didn't have some Ivy League degree or super influential rabbi education. No doctorates, no royal titles, didn't own property, didn't even have a home to go to. He lacked the right connections. He made made the religious leaders, the influential people, mad. He hung out with outcasts, dropouts. He was carpenter until age 30. During his ministry, he preached tough messages. Many people turned away from following him. The ones that stuck around, he said, hey, you're going to be persecuted. Follow me. In order to follow me, you're going to have to pick up your cross. By the time he was 33, the religious leaders fully hated him. His own people rejected him. His closest friends abandoned him, and he died in the most painful, humiliating way. And yet, he changed the world more than any other person. Today, I want us to think about how and what was his approach. He had different ones, but I want to talk about one today. And what I want us to realize is that his approach to influencing the world is far different than many of ours is. It's far different than the approaches that we would use. It's probably the exact opposite. He became great by becoming less, right? He said, in order to lead, you have to serve. And get this, he has this super important mission, three years to get it done, and yet, he still had time for all these one-on-one interactions with people. That's really what did it. We see story after story in the Gospels where he's taking time, time and time again, to meet one need at a time. And one of those times is found in Matthew 15 that I want to look at. I think that many of us would like to live a life where we meet the needs of other people and have that, but all too often we're too busy. Or maybe we don't feel like we're qualified. Or maybe we follow the the world's advice and we think we have to take care of ourselves first. Maybe you've tried this, right? Maybe you've tried this, but it wasn't appreciated. Maybe you've tried to help somebody out and people didn't notice. 
Maybe we tried to meet a need, but it just didn't turn out. Do you ever get bored and want to laugh? Look up good intentions that fail on the internet. I read about a guy who posted that his neighbor was giving him notes all the time, cards and notes and, and everything like that of encouragement. The thing was, though, that this guy was blind. The person knew it, though. In fact, they knew it, so they looked up Braille, and on these cards, they wrote in Braille. The problem is they wrote in Braille. Didn't exactly work out. Sometimes we have good intentions, but they just don't fly. You try to meet a need, it just doesn't go the way you hoped. Here's something, though, I want you to think about. Maybe you're somebody who wants to meet needs, but you're also tired and you're worn out. Maybe it seems like somebody always needs something. So even though your heart goes out, your heart would be to take care of other people around you, maybe it feels like your tank is on empty. That fuel light is on. If that's you, you are the main people that I want to speak to today. In Matthew 15, I want you to understand that this is a time in Jesus' life where he probably was feeling something similar to what a lot of us are feeling. Before this, in Matthew 14, it starts off with Jesus receiving some news that his cousin, John the Baptist, has been killed. Killed as in his head was chopped off by Herod's order. Not because he did something wrong. It was because a girl danced before Herod, and Herod promised to give her anything she wanted, and she asked for John's head. And I wonder what Jesus thought about that, how he took that. They were close. They'd grown up together. John the Baptist was extremely loyal to Jesus. He was literally the ride-or-die type of person for Jesus. And I think sometimes we forget that Jesus experienced the same sorrow that we experience, the same things that we do. The Bible says in Matthew 14, verse 13, as soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. We understand this, right? We see what's happening here. Jesus just needs some time. The time to get away. The time after you lose that close friend, that close family member. Just time to yourself to be alone. But the crowds heard where he was headed. And followed on foot from many towns. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So, Jesus needs some time to rest, but he doesn't get it, right? It's a large crowd and I'm sure there were quite a few needs to be met, quite a few people to be healed. After all, this is a story where the crowd of 5,000 people were fed. I'm sorry, 5,000 men 
So probably more like 10 to 15,000 people. And we know that Jesus works a miracle and he feeds these people. And so by the time you get to chapter 15, Jesus has to be feeling spent. He's lost a friend. He tries to get away. Large crowd finds him. And here he's meeting one need after another, including feeding 15,000 people. Then we get to chapter 15. Here's what happens. He's confronted by religious leaders. Great. And they want to argue with him over a matter of tradition. So don't miss this, all right? Jesus has been working dramatically in people's lives. And the religious leaders want to argue with him over tradition. Verse 2 of 15, they say to Jesus, why do your disciples break the tradition of elders? They don't wash their hands. What was the big, pressing, important issue that they needed to talk to Jesus with and bother him about after he's healing people? His disciples weren't washing their hands. Seriously? Right? That would be like us experiencing an amazing time of worship and then having somebody complain about the songs that we sing. One of my favorite pastors that I listened to was talking about a time where they baptized like 125 people in a couple weeks and somebody wanted to come and rip on them because the people wore t-shirts. And they had a problem with that. You want to focus on washing hands? Is that what we want to focus in on here? Do you remember when the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus after talking to him because he healed somebody on the Sabbath? That can't happen in here. And yet it does. We can't get caught up in putting traditions above other things and arguing about our preferences and thereby miss the whole point. In chapter 15, the religious leaders are focused on their traditions, practices. Jesus is focused in on hurting and broken people. The question for us is, what are we going to be about as a church? Jesus has zero tolerance, zero patience for this, and he calls them a bunch of hypocrites. And it's kind of funny if you read in chapter 15, verse 12, (laughs) the disciples came to him and asked, do you realize you offended the Pharisees by what you just said? Jesus replied, every plant not planted by my heavenly Father will be uprooted, so ignore them. They are blind guides leading the blind, and if one blind person guides another, they will both fall into a ditch. Hmm. So here's Jesus, lost a close family member, tries to get away, ends up ministering to a whole bunch of people, then gets confronted by high-maintenance religious hypocrites that want to talk to him about washing hands. And if that doesn't drain the tank, I don't know what would. Verse 29, Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. What's he doing? He's going to an even more remote place, and he sits down. 
Remember, he's got no home to go to, right? If this is me, in my case, I'd just go in my home and hide from everybody. But he goes up on a mountainside and sits down. Here's the interesting part. This is not a Jewish area where he goes. This is a Gentile area. So you would think probably this is a good place for a Jewish rabbi to go to because they're not going to want to have anything to do with him. Probably going to be able to get some peace and quiet. I mean, Jews and Gentiles didn't mix. They didn't like each other. Jews thought Gentiles were dogs. Different religious ideas. They're non-believers. Different political ideas. Could you imagine if some Democrats and Republicans got together? They didn't talk to each other. But verse 30 says, great crowds, and this would be great crowds of Gentiles, came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, and the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. People come one after another, one after another, and don't miss this. This goes on for days. Verse 32, And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse on the way. And his disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? This just shows you that Jesus was a man of patience, right? Okay, seriously, disciples, weren't you just here a few days ago when we did the same thing? Like, don't you remember chapter 14? It seems like you were there when we fed those 15,000 people. You know what I wonder? I wonder if they just didn't want to do it again. I wonder if they were tired. Sounds pretty exhausting feeding that many people. And this wasn't a situation where it was their people, right? These are the unbelieving Gentiles. These are the dogs. These aren't the Ohio State people. These are the University of Michigan people. And once again, we realize that Jesus works an incredible miracle and he feeds a crowd of thousands again. And we see he's meeting one need after another. There's a word I want to bring up again that I've been preaching about a lot lately, but it's a word that I just keep understanding more and more deeply. And it's the word that unlocks a lifestyle that is all about meeting a need one at a time. It's used in chapter 14. It's used in chapter 15. It's a word that um, typically defines an emotion or feeling. And if you read through the Gospels, this emotion or feeling is attached to Jesus time and time again. And you know what that word is, right? Compassion. Chapter 14, chapter 15, it just says, I have compassion. I have compassion for these people. And I'm wondering to myself, does that word mark me as a follower of Christ? 
What about you? Compassion is how we live a one need at a time type of life, so I want to talk about it. A lot of people equate words like sympathy and empathy to compassion. Like, hey, I feel sorry for a person. But that's not compassion. The word that describes compassion here, this strong emotion that Jesus felt, elicits a physical response. When's the last time that you felt that compassion where it drove you to do something? Clarence Stevens was leaving a store. He returned to his car only to find out that he locked his keys in it with his cell phone inside. Teenager was riding his bike and saw him kick the tire and say a choice few words. What's wrong, he asked. Clarence explained the situation. Then he said, but even if I could call my wife, she can't bring me her car key since this is our only car. The teenager handed him his cell phone and said, call your wife and tell her I'm coming to get the key. That's seven miles round trip. The man said, don't worry about it. An hour later, teen returned with the key. Clarence offered him some money, but he refused. Let's just say I needed the exercise. Did you hear that, teens? Compassion. Compassion involves action. We hear stories that tug at our heart all the time, but if we don't do something, it's not compassion. It's just sympathy or empathy. I was reading those stories and I was, it just hit me. Isn't it awesome that the king of the universe has compassion for us? And not only for us, but for non-believers. This story where Jesus goes up the mountain the second time to feed all those people, this is the start of Jesus' ministry to the Gentiles. This is how Jesus sees people. This is how Jesus sees you. Here's what I want us to get. Compassion is fuel. Compassion is the fuel for meeting one need at a time. Compassion is fuel when you're feeling tired or you're busy and you feel indifferent or apathetic. Compassion is what pushes us, drives us, to meet the needs that God has called us to meet. If I could genetically engineer my kids and give them one trait, besides good hair, right? It'd be compassion. I'd take that over brains, over muscle, over athletic ability. And I love sports. I choose compassion for them. I choose compassion for this church. I think that's something we should pray for, reach for, ask for. It should be the quality that we, we go after. A woman named Jerry Lynn wrote, when my husband died unexpectedly, a coworker took me under her wing. Every week for an entire year, 
She would send me a card saying, just thinking of you, or hang in there. Jerry Lynn said, she saved my life. Compassion doesn't have to be some big thing, right? It doesn't have to be some big thing to make a huge difference. You don't need a ton of money to be compassionate. I can look back at my life and see all the little things that people did for me. A popular girl in, in high school who was just kind to me when other kids were making fun of me. And she said something encouraging to me. A boy at camp that stood up for me when some other kids were picking on me. A teacher that stayed after school when I was about to flunk and turned around my academics. A youth pastor that complimented me all the time when I saw him at a time when my dad wasn't in the picture and I felt like a loser. A man in the church that reached out to me when I was at my lowest. These are the little things that people did that they might not even realize had a huge impact on my life. But they did. That's our potential. Sometimes it's just the right word, right? At the right time. Doesn't seem like a big deal. But you don't know how God will use it. Just one hug, one smile. Guys, smile at people. You know what difference that makes? I'm usually grumpy James or smile James. I need to be more smile James. Look at people and smile. It's one meal, it's one cup of coffee, it's one phone call, one prayer at a time. I get to come in here early because Adavi comes in with the praise team and, and worships. And I love seeing how everybody interacts all throughout the time before Sunday school time and everything like that. They're, they're going up to each other. They're asking people how they're doing. They're talking. They're loving on each other. And for the people who just come for Sunday, the service, I hope you're not missing that. I hope you're not missing that interaction. I hope you're not missing that roots intertwining that we talked about three weeks ago. Because that's where church is at. That's the base. That's the foundation. It's in Christ, but it's also in fellowship with each other. True fellowship. Don't miss out on that. Don't just come to church. As a church, I want us to grow in this. I want, I want to give us a couple key ways that we can maybe start to, to grow in compassion. Number one, ask Jesus to give you his eyes for people, right? There's a, there's a song, it's old now, that talks about giving, giving me your eyes. If you study compassion in the Gospels, you'll find that it is often connected to the word saw. We see in chapter 14, Jesus saw the crowds and had compassion. And that word saw is not like I'm looking at my phone and I glance up and I see something and I go back to my phone, right? It's intentional. You're looking for it. You're looking for things. You're watching people. You're studying them. You're thinking about them. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you his eyes for people that, so that you have that supernatural understanding 
of a word that they might need to hear or a need they might need to be met. Driving home in a blizzard, I noticed a vehicle trailing close behind me. Suddenly, my tire blew. Pulled off the road and so did the other car. A man jumped out and immediately changed my flat tire. Guy said, I was going to get off a couple miles back, but I didn't think that tire looked good. So I kept following. We need to be like that guy. Looking. Looking at people. We can be so, we can be so buried in this thing, man, that we're missing all the people right around us. Put it down. Look for some people, right? Second way to grow in compassion as a church is to ask ourselves a very simple question on a regular basis. And here's the question. You ready? Is that a yeah? All right, good. What would it be like? Here's the question. What would it be like? Just stop yourself. Put yourself in somebody else's shoes. It might be something that you don't even like. It might be somebody that doesn't have your beliefs. Maybe different politics. Maybe it's just a person that gets on your nerves. Stop and ask, what would it be like? Jesus is with the Gentiles, and he does this. He puts himself in the position of the crowd, and he says, they have already been with me three days and had nothing to eat. He sees. He knows what they're going through. He's taking the time to say, that's what it's like to be them, and I don't want to send them away hungry. Or, or because they might collapse on the way. If I don't do something, here's what might happen. That's what we need to do, right? This is how we grow in compassion. We have to stop and ask, what would it be like? Make a post-it note. Put it on your dash, on your car. Put it on your desk at work. Put it on your mirror at home so that you see it regularly. Last year, I went to a father-son camp at Beulah Beach. At this camp, you, you do things together with your son. Great time. At one point, we were able to go out on a jet ski, so we're waiting in line. And a kid comes up to us and says, hey, can I come with you guys? I can't ride alone. And I'm thinking, okay, I don't have a lot of experience on a jet ski. All right. Um, I'm an introvert. This is a little weird and awkward. I don't know you. I don't like meeting new people, you know. I like to just stay in my zone and everything like that. And so I'm like, you know, I, I don't think you only can ride two people at a time. He's like, oh, no, I asked them. They said I could ride three if I could find somebody. <laughs> so can I come with you guys? Not only am I not comfortable on a jet ski, well, I drove one once, yeah, and Adobe said I was a wuss, and she said, let me drive, and she proceeded to throw me off the jet ski <laughs> while we were driving. So, that's my experience with the jet ski up to this point. But I'm looking at the lake, and here's a storm that's on its way, getting ready to come in, and so the waves are a little bit wilder. You know, we were on a lake, and I was failing. So I'm like, ah, I just don't think it's be, it, it would be good. But we say, sure, come with us. 
So we get on the jet ski, <laughs> we, we don't even get 10 feet, and we tip it. <laughs> the only people that I saw all day tip the jet ski right at the start, us. <laughs> so now I'm embarrassed, right? I'm embarrassed, and I'm like, ah. So we get back up on there. We put the kid behind me. It was me, Ethan, then the kid, but the kid was bigger than Ethan, so we put the kid behind me, and we take off, and we're riding, and, and I'm barely keeping this thing under control, and here's this kid raising his hands, screaming, yelling, flying all around, and we wipe out. In the middle of the lake, we wipe out. So now I'm mad, right? Because I was telling this kid, just hold on, right? I'm already feeling anxious and everything like that. Just hold on. So I'm embarrassed. I'm mad. We get back on there, and I'm like, listen, you keep your hands around my waist, and we're going back. So we go back. We, we did not have a good time, right, Ethan? No. We get back, and, and uh, I'm like, Ethan, you want to go again? He's like, no, no. I'm, I'm good. So about, yeah, 15 minutes later, though, I'm like, let's just go. Me and you, we'll go out again. And so I'm thinking in my head, we just got to watch out for this kid, and I got to avoid him. So we get in line. Sure enough, the kid comes up again. You guys going back out? Yeah. Can, we, can I go with you? You know what? No, um, because I, I just can't do it with three people, you know. And so we go out, and we, we have a, a much better time that time, right? A lot easier. We didn't fall off or anything like that. Um, but here's the thing. After that, we go to the next activity and the next activity, and guess who's following us around? Here's that kid, right? And the kid was just a little socially different, and he's acting up, and he's starting to get on my nerves. So I tried to avoid him. And I got talking to him, because I was mad. When he kept following us around, because I'm like, where's your dad? Right? Where's your dad? Why is your dad not here with you? And I'm getting mad at everything. And he says, well, my dad's here, but it's really my stepdad. And his biological son, he's hanging out with him. So here's a kid. At a father-son retreat that doesn't have a father to hang out with. And there's a pastor who's trying to blow him off. That can't be us. That cannot be us. What would it be like to be that kid? I could already tell he didn't have a good home life. I could tell that just by the way he was acting. What would it be like? You know, we've had some interesting kids in youth group that acted up, who ran around in church and got in trouble. But man, when you learn about their lives and what they're dealing with, who cares, right? Yeah, we want to be authoritative and make sure they're, they're following some rules and everything like that. But what would it be like? You know, I get to do the thing, the mentoring thing at school and the stories of these kids that we get involved in Sometimes we get together and we just talk about what's going on in the lives of our kids that we're mentoring, and it blows my mind. 
blows my mind what these kids are dealing with in their home situations. We've got to be a church that says, what would it be like to be that kid? What would it be like to have to deal with that disability? What would it be like to have to struggle with that? What would it have to be like to be a single mom or a single dad trying to raise a family? What would it be like to grow up in that way? What would it be like to get that unemployment notice? What would it feel like to have the stress of those bills coming in? What would it be like? Can that be your mantra? Can that be your thought process when you meet somebody and see someone? I'm going to tell you that every time my heart has gone out to somebody and it's moved me to give or serve or help, even on that Saturday when I didn't want to, every dollar I've spent, every minute I've spent, I've never missed any of that time. Never. I've never thought, man, I wish I wouldn't have helped that person. Can I tell you, similarly, every time that the Holy Spirit has said, help, and I've made up an excuse, those are the times that haunt me. How could I have been with that kid? No, I used to excuse, well, I'm, I'm here spending time with my own son, and I need to focus in on that. What would Ethan do if he saw his dad, though? Just loving on some other kid, helping him out, and he knew that kid didn't have a dad there. I'm sure he'd be okay with that. I'm sure he'd understand that. I'm sure I could make that up to him. I want that trait for my kids. I've got to demonstrate that trait for my kids. They've got to see that. They've got to see that in this church. That doesn't happen unless you intertwine roots. That doesn't happen if you just come from Sunday. Come a little bit early. Come 10, 15 minutes early. There's people hanging out in the lobby. Intertwine your roots. Get in a small group. And don't just get in a small group. Get in a small group that that you can share things with. And if you don't have that small group, start that small group. Find something you got in common with somebody, but then go deeper. Love on some people. Be with some people. We have to be at the church that follows the Holy Spirit's leading. And when the enemy says, ah, you don't need to do that, don't give that away. You're going to need that money. You're going to need that time. I hope we give. When the enemy says, you're tired, you need time to yourself, I hope we serve. You won't regret those times. Do you know what happens here in Matthew 15 when Jesus does this stuff? I don't want you to miss it. It says that Jesus was meeting those needs one need at a time, and it says they praised the God of Israel. The Gentiles praised the God of Israel. They don't even believe in the God of Israel of Israel, and yet they praised him. Jesus didn't come in there debating, didn't come in there making some arguments, didn't tell them how they were wrong and following some false god. 
wasn't arguing politics, wasn't pointing fingers, wasn't showing them their mistakes, wasn't heaping up shame. I don't even think he preached a sermon. He just came in there and met needs, one need at a time. And that compassion opened up a door for people to see God differently. As a church, we're going to have all kinds of opportunities to live a life that way. That way, Let's do it. Let's do it. Right? Will you pray for those eyes to see people? Will you put your smartphone down? Will you be intentional and look at people? Maybe, like I said, it's the weird people, the people that you don't like, the people that you do like. Maybe you don't see the need that's there because you just talk about things on the surface. We be intentional with how you look at, will you be praying and asking the Holy Spirit to reveal some things to you? We just talk to him and go up to him and be there, right? And then will you just ask, what would it be like? What would it be like to be in their shoes? It changes how you see people. It changes how you react to people. What would it be like? Would you stand with me? The challenge, look for the opportunities and take them, no matter how big, how small, how costly, how tired, no matter what, follow the Holy Spirit's leading and pray for those opportunities. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Lord, help us to mirror you. Lord, you loved us. Help us to love other people. You loved us while we were still sinners. You loved us while we were still enemies. Father, would you put that same love in us? Lord, would you put that compassion in us that doesn't just empathize, or sympathize, would you help us to do something? Lord, help us not to think it's too small or too big or make up any excuses. Help us to follow your leading, Lord. Give us those opportunities so that you get praised, not us. Help us to do it so that you're glorified, not us. Help us to do it so that at some time, we can share truth with somebody and they'll know where it's coming from. It's not coming from guilt or shame. It's coming because we love them, because we serve them. Lord, give us those opportunities. One need at a time, Father. In your name we ask this. In the name of Jesus, amen.